Amen. Thank you, Larry, and thank you, worship team. It is good to finally be with you guys. I appreciate that kind of enthusiasm. We're going to need that during the sermon. Pastor Bill and I actually this week were at the Bridge Fellowship Conference, which is a, a, a regional association for our, the church that we're a part of. And it, it was just good to be with fellow pastors this week. But I can tell you, the whole time, Pastor Bill and I, our hearts were here with you, longing to be with you even here this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage and invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. And as you're making your way there, let me ask you, when you think about common metaphors that appear in the Scriptures to describe the church and to describe His people, the body, what are some of the ones that come to your mind? For example, I just used the word, the body. Does passages like Colossians 1.18 come to your mind? Where we see that the church is described this way, the body. Or another metaphor we see in 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul says to young Timothy, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the, the household. There's a, another metaphor used to describe the church, which is the church of the living God. And that church is also described in this passage as the pillar and buttress of the truth. Or we have passages like Ephesians 2, 19, that you're no longer considered strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints, members of the household of God. Or a few verses later where we're described as a, a holy temple unto the Lord. The point being, there are many metaphors that are used in the Scripture to describe the church. You might have even wondered from time to time, why does God, why does the Word of God so often use a metaphor to convey a principle, to convey a truth? In his book, Joe Rigney describes in the book, The Things of Earth, he, he explains why God so often uses analogy and metaphor. Here's what he says. Analogy and metaphor, whether in Scripture or in the natural world, are the primary ways that God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. Created realities bring God's perfection home to us in ways that are visible, concrete, and particular. They keep God's attributes and characteristics from being mere abstractions because it's impossible for us to love a list of qualities. God is a person, not an alphanumeric list of attributes, and thus he reveals himself in and through his mighty works. The point being that, that often when God is trying to communicate about himself to us, he's using analogy and he's using metaphor that often come right from this particular world. The metaphor that we're going to be studying this morning, if you haven't guessed it already, is the metaphor of the bride. Uh, this metaphor runs through the course of Scripture. For example, we see it in Isaiah 54 where it says, your maker is your husband. 
We see it there. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like, there's our analogy, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. Or later, even Christ uses this metaphor to describe why his disciples were not fasting. The, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Remember, metaphors, they're meant to inform us, to help us love God more. The sad reality is, though, sometimes those experiences that we've had in this life taint our view of those metaphors. We read them and we see them and we don't experience them the way that God intended them to be. For example, often when we pray, we pray to God as Father because that's the way Christ taught us to pray. It's meant to be a powerful metaphor of a divine being who, who loves and cares for you, even at your, because your parents know, your worst and most foolish moments. It's part of the reason that God reveals himself as Father. It's supposed to generate a love for him. But there are, even in a room like this, people who, who've had terrible experiences at the hands of their father. And when they think about God as father, it creates pain for them. It is sad for sure when that is true and your church family weeps with you. But the goal of God being known as our father is to, to help us in our relationship with him, not drive us away. The same is true of the metaphor of Christ being the bride, him being us being pictured that way as a church. The goal is to demonstrate and, and to highlight idealized relationships. But I realize that, that some of you might be coming to this metaphor, to this text, with, with a skewed view, maybe because of the relationship between your parents, maybe because of your own suffering and broken marriage. In fact, you might even be thinking that this is the week where something needs to change. Praise God, we are here to support you in any way that we can. But whether it's relationships with our parents or, or relationships with a marriage, these earthly relationships are ultimately to point us in a way that helps us love God more. And we're studying this morning as part of our series, Be the Church, we're studying this morning about what it means to be an engaged bride. And my hope is that as we look at this metaphor, and we only have so much time to even look at this passage, we could probably spend a whole fall series studying Ephesians 5 and all of the implications that it would have for our church, but we don't have time. I hope that we'll see three ways that the body of Christ is called to love as the bride of Christ. So follow along with me this morning as I read in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to begin in verse 17 because that's where the, the logic of the passage starts. But for our studying purposes this morning, we're primarily going to look at verses 25 through 27. But let's make sure we have the context of the passage as we begin our study. Follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And now he's going to explain in five ways what that means to be filled with the Spirit. It says this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and lastly, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, submit or wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Now, the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, the passage that we're primarily going to look at this morning, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. To finish out the argument of the text, in the same way husbands love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery is profound, and I'm saying that this is, refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the word of the Lord. We're looking for three ways that the body of Christ is to love as the bride of Christ. And the first is this. It's to use the tools of love that have been given. Well, we're going to see two primary tools here in our text. Ways that Christ calls for us to love the body, the church. First is this. We see the washing with the word. In the gospel message. Verse 26 puts it this way. Having cleansed her. That's Christ. By the washing of water. With the word. We're told in our passage. That Christ loves the church. And one of the ways that he did this. Is through this washing. Now some of you might be thinking for a moment. That's got to do with baptism. That moment that he's describing of washing. That has to do with baptism. The scriptures highlight the importance of baptism. It doesn't really have a category for a person who says they're a Christian but isn't baptized, just like it doesn't have a category for a person who says they're a Christian but isn't a member of a local church. But that is not what the text is describing when it describes cleansing here. Peter O'Brien puts it this way in his commentary. Cleansing points to the removal of sin, while sanctification, which is going to come later, focuses on being set apart to God. To use systematic theological categories, what's being described here is positional or definitive sanctification, not progressive sanctification. Meaning, he's talking about that thing that happens when a person trusts Christ as their Lord and Savior at that very moment. 
Because there was a very particular moment, if you're a Christian, when you went from not being a Christian to being a Christian. No one here was born a Christian. God does not have any grandchildren. There was a moment, if you're a Christian, when you trusted in Christ, you trusted in his death, his burial, and his resurrection to be the only thing that could save you. And at that moment, your position was changed. You went from being an enemy of God to being a friend, to being a child of God. There there was a moment when when you were destined for hell and, and now you are destined for eternity. That is what is being described here in our passage. That One of the ways that Christ loved us was He secured our position that we would be able to spend eternity with God in heaven if we would but repent. If we would but believe, if we would confess our sin and place our trust in Christ alone. And so it's a natural point for all of us to consider here this morning. Has there been a definite time in your life? A moment when you cried out to Christ to forgive you of your sin. If there hasn't been... I know that I speak for myself and the other pastors and a lot of good people around here. We would be delighted. We would drop whatever we're doing this week to share with you the good news of Christ so that you can know that you know that you're on your way to heaven. But back to the text here for a moment. I notice the logic of the passage. This washing is happening with, with the word. Paul is trying to tie, and he's doing a great job, that the good news of Christ comes from the the Word of God. We cannot know salvation apart from God's Word. Paul would put it this way in Romans 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through, through the Word of Christ. Faith in God be it saving faith or the daily faith that we need to express, it is generated primarily through the reading and the studying of the Word of God. I'll say it again. Faith, that is saving faith or the the daily faith that we need, it is generated primarily through the, the reading and the studying of the Word of God. The passage is talking about the way in which Christ loved us. He loved us by by removing our sin on the cross if we would trust and believe. And and that comes from the the Word of God that we would know these things. And so, I think that's an appropriate time for us to consider then how do we apply this text to our lives this morning. Let me give you three ways that I think are helpful applications for us to consider this tool of love and understanding what it is that Christ did for us. Number one, do you know the Word of God well enough that if someone said, I don't know how to be saved, I want to be saved, that you could take them to very specific scriptures in the Word of God and that you could do it without the aid of Google? That you you would know your Bible well enough that that if somebody said to you, then what must I do to be saved? 
that you could take them in the word of God because you knew in your mind exactly where those verses, you stored them in your heart. I don't mean that you would just say particular truths, that we are sinners, but you would take them to the very words of Christ. Or number two, <clears throat> that if when it comes to ministering to someone, let's say a family member or a brother and sister in Christ here at the church or a co-worker, that when they're, they're hurting and you believe that the, the Word of God would have answers for their life, are you able to actually take them to specific passages in Scripture and not just say general truths that align with the Word of God? I'm glad that your mind would think in a way that is consistent with Scripture. But can you bring yourself to the, the very words in the Bible to share those good news with other people? I'm not saying that there's anything magical, but I do believe that there's special power that the Spirit uses when you bring people, including yourself, to the Word of God. Lastly then, although we could obviously consider more in times of crisis in your own life or in other people's lives, when you're trying to minister, do you know your Bible well enough that, that you can bring them the hope of God's Word? Or is the Bible just a lifeline that every once in a while you visit in times of trouble and difficulty, but, but you don't know it very well? How well do you know the Bible for your own life in crisis, for salvation, and for the ministering of Christ to others. So that was the first tool of love. The second one is this, that, that we're called to sacrifice our desires and our wants for others. The text puts it this way, Husbands, love your wives as, here's an analogy, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her there's a powerful particular word here in our passage, gave himself up. It's the Greek word paradidomai. And it's a, we, we just do not have time this morning. And I don't even know that I have the skill to unpack how significant this word being the word that was chosen in our text. To give you a flavor for how often this word is used in the Scripture, let me give you two passages, and let me see if you can figure out where this particular word appears in these passages. First one in Matthew 10, 4, describing the, the apostles. You had Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. That's the particular word there. This word is being used to describe what it is that Christ did for us, the church, gave himself up. Or here in Matthew 24, 9 through 10, then they will deliver you. This is Christ talking about the disciples. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And oh, do we feel that today? And, they, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. You see it there, that they will deliver you up. This describes Christ's giving up of himself, this betrayal, this he sacrificed himself for you and for me. His love for you, his love for us Berean, his, his love for the church universal is so powerful 
that he gave himself up. He sacrificed his life unto death for you and for me so that we might be saved. The text here then compels us to see that that our giving up of ourselves for others the same way that Christ did for us. We're called to sacrifice our desires and our wants for the betterment of others. There's so many examples that we could talk about, ways that are relevant for our lives, ways that are even relevant in the life of this church family. Let me give you two really quick that I think are relevant and practical for for where we are at as a church family. The first is this, the capital campaign. We have such a marvelous and wonderful opportunity to invest not only our finances, but so much of our life into the future generations. And this is going to require for all of us a level of sacrifice, a level of giving up of ourselves both financially and in part of our time. I would encourage everyone, you've heard us say it before, that you would be considering very carefully and prayerfully, how will we sacrifice? How will we give up of ourselves in order to invest in the future? Or you heard Pastor Bill mention a few moments ago about trunk or treat. I know some of you, you're like really excited to do trunk or treat. You're, you're looking forward to it. And others of you are like, I'll just pray for that one for sure. This is an opportunity for us to sacrifice in all kinds of ways. To, to try to build relationships with our community. To, to meet people we might not normally meet for, before. And then just for the opportunity One day, perhaps, to invite them to church. One day, perhaps, to share the good news of Christ with them. Uh, There's all kinds of other examples that you could be thinking about in your marriage, in your parenting, even in the life of this church. Thinking about ways to serve in children's ministries or greeters or town or sound or in worship. All kinds of ways abound for us, church family, to to use the tool of love to, to sacrifice our desires for one another. The world will tell us, by the way, that sacrifice is fine as long as you get what you want. You can give up something in order to get something, right? So, so you can sacrifice time with your family that you should be spending as long as you're going to get ahead at work, as long as you're going to get that promotion. You can sacrifice giving to the church, don't worry about that, as long as you can get that bigger house or that newer car. The world will say that you can sacrifice studying the Word of God. You don't need to wake up in the morning and study your Bible when God's people study their Bible, right? Where's that excited amen that was earlier coming? You don't need to do that. You can stay up late enjoying the pleasures of television. You can sacrifice the purity of your soul for quick entertainment. Church, the world will tell you that you can sacrifice all kinds of things as long as you get what you want. But if we do it the world's way, we will ruin our souls. Christ is calling for us to sacrifice 
Not, not for the, the betterment of us, but for the betterment of those around us. The world says, me over you. Christ says, you over me. Let us be a people that use the tool of love that we see in this text to sacrifice our desires and our preferences and our wants for those around us. The second point from the text is this, that we're called to labor towards the effect of love. Well, what is the effect of love? What is this text describing? The purpose of it is the sanctification of the church, that he might sanctify her. What is the goal of all of this love? That the bride might be made holy. But why does Christ show us so much love? Because he is trying to sanctify us. Now, that's nice church language. You might have heard the word sanctification before. I've even used it here to describe positional sanctification. What's being described here is not positional, but progressive sanctification. But, but what does it mean? It means to be made holy, to be made like Christ. Positional sanctification, that, that's fully a work of God. That, that's something He does. The, the only thing that, that you and I contribute to positional sanctification is you brought the sin. That's all you brought to the table. Progressive sanctification is a, a synergistic work of God. God giving you the strength as you labor. Him giving you grace, you power. That's what the text is talking about. What, what is the effect of this love? The goal is that he might sanctify her, and as I mentioned, transforming us to the image of Christ. Christ is the perfect person. Christ is the one who is our aim and our goal. Christ is who we're called to be transformed to. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, those whom he predestined, meaning the saved, the elect, the church, the body, the bride, he called them, called us to be conformed to the image of his son so that he, in order that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Our goal is not to become like me, not to become like Pastor Bill. Your model is Christ. What you hear myself and other pastors saying is, follow me as I follow Christ. What's amazing about this goal of being transformed into his image, if you know your Bible well, you know the verse that comes right before this. What's amazing about this goal of Christ conformity is he's using all of the situations in your life to make you like Christ. And we know, we know, Paul says, that for those whom God loves, he works all things, all things for good. But how is good defined? Good is defined as making you, conforming you to the image of Christ. Every ounce of suffering, every injustice, 
every wrong done, every foolish mistake that God allowed you to make, every good and joyful triumph in your life, He's using all of it for your good, but good as defined as making you like Jesus. So so what is the goal, the labor, as I said, is our holiness, progressive sanctification. I think then it's a good opportunity for us to ask again, then then what are the, the steps that I need to take to grow in holiness today, this week, this month? It might look like joining one of our excellent Sunday schools that we have here in this church. I hope that you would be serious about joining one of those groups that meet to to study the Word of God, that, that meet for encouragement so that you might grow in your holiness. Or it might look like going to the church library that has hundreds and thousands of resources that might help you grow to become like Jesus. And the best part is you can check them out and you don't have to pay for them. Maybe, younger person, it looks like finding a mentor, someone who's walked with Christ 10, 15, 20, 30 years more than you have, asking for mentoring or coaching. It might look like you admitting that you need personal one-on-one counseling and discipleship from the Word of God, from one of the pastors or someone else, where you'd say that there's some sort of sin in my life that, that I need help with. What is the labor of our love? It is our sanctification. Why did God send us? So that we might be made. Why did God send the Son? So that we might be made holy. That we might be transformed to the image of Christ. But why does he do this? Why does God send his son? It's for the display of the glory of God. Notice how Paul puts this sanctification and God's glory in the same verse here in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, that is the church, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God is working all things to the counsel of His will, and He's doing this so that He would be glorified. He wants, God wants, His infinite holiness on display for all people to see. And when His holiness is on display, that will result in what we did before the sermon. That will result in praise. Why did Christ die on the cross? Why is he washing us to become sons of God? So that God's glory would be on display for all to see. So it begs the question this morning, are you passionate about God's glory? Are you excited about God's glory here on this earth? Let me put it this way by way of metaphor here for a moment. Many of you either work for a company or before you were retired, you worked for someone. And when you either worked for someone or worked for someone, that company was very interested in their reputation, not only in this community, but around the country and around the world. 
If you went around destroying the reputation of the company that you worked for, doing foolish and illegal things, how long would it be until you were out of a job? Not very long. Why? Because that business is zealous about their reputation. God is zealous and jealous for his own glory. He wants us, the bride. He wants us, the people, his household of God, to represent God well. And so can I ask you this morning, are you passionate? Are you excited about the glory of God? Do you want people to see who God is as you live out your life each and every day? There might be specific steps that you need to consider this week. Specific choices that you'll have to put off. Decisions that you will need to put on in order to display the glory of God well. Lastly, then, our text highlights this, that we're called to marvel at the future promise of love. Verse 27, so that he, that is Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Why? That she might be holy and without blemish. Notice, this is a, this is a future thing. And if, you, if you've been tracking even with the logic of the passage and the way that I outlined it, we've gone from positional to progressive to, to final sanctification or often what is called glorification. This too is only a work of God, just like our salvation. He is the one who will ultimately make us holy, perfectly holy. We will never reach it this side of heaven. Notice how commentator Peter O'Brien puts it this way, Christ's people may rightly be accused of many shortcomings and failures. And oh, can the church be accused of shortcomings and failures. But God's gracious intention is that the church should be holy and blameless. And he will, as Paul puts it in Philippians 1.6, he will complete that work. I am sure of this, Paul says, he who began that good work in you, who began that good work in me, who began the good work in Berean Baptist, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is such a powerful promise. One day, all of the suffering, all of the sin, all of the blemishes, we will be made whole. We will be made holy mentioned that the, the bride of Christ is a, <clears throat> a theme that runs through Scripture. And as we think about this future sanctification, this future glorification, y- your mind may have even made it already to Revelation 21, verse 2, where, where John sees the end, the future, and he, he sees the holy city coming down, the new Jerusalem out of heaven from God, and just picture this mind from, picture in your mind all of those weddings that you have been to. When the bride walks in, in, in her beauty and in her white, that is the way the church has described a bride adorned for her husband. 
I hope that as you think on heaven, church family, that when you consider for a moment what God did for us, but, but His future that is laid up for us, that it would cause in you awe and wonder. That as you think about that, that the temporary pleasures of this world as Satan and his devices try to get you from walking holy, that those things would burn off like the morning fog. That you would consider your glorification if you know Christ. That you would consider where God is bringing you and that would bring you to a place of awe and wonder at the love of your heavenly Father. And that as you think about that, that you would be serious about putting off sin like today. That you'd be serious about getting to know God's word like today. You wouldn't say, one day I'll put off my anger. One day I'll put off greed. One day I'll put off all of those sins like pornography. One day may not come for you. That today would be the day that you choose to walk in holiness. As we conclude here, let me read from J.C. Ryle's book on holiness and helping us think about our future glorification in heaven. He says this, Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. Just think about that for a moment. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of the saints would you join yourself, and by whose side would you sit down? Uh, their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their tastes are not your tastes. Their character, not your character. How could you possibly be happy if you had not been holy on earth? The inhabitants thereof rest, not day or night, but saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and singing praises of the Lamb. How could an unholy man find pleasure in an occupation such as these? He would feel stranger in a land that he knew not. A black sheep amid Christ's holy flock. The voice of the cherubim and seraphim, the songs of the angels and archangels, and all of the company of heaven would be a language he could not understand the very air would seem an air he could not breathe. Beloved, the church is called the bride of Christ. Christ died for his bride. He gave himself up. And he, he calls for us to follow in that example of, of giving up of ourselves to love one another and to grow in our holiness and to find our ultimate hope in looking toward heaven for those whom Christ died to save. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we come before you this morning and we are humbled by these words. As we see the, the sacrifice of your Son and, and we're called to live that sacrifice out. Father, we know that we don't have that type of power in ourselves. That we don't have the strength to give up our own desires and wants. And so, Father, we pray by the power of your Spirit that you would give us all that we need to grow in holiness. I pray that we would take that seriously, like, like today. 
that as we consider the future, as we consider heaven with you, that that would motivate us even now toward holiness. And that if there be anyone here in this room who does not know you, who has not yet trusted you as Lord and as Savior of their lives, by admitting their sin, that even today, Father, that they would come to know you as their Lord, as their Savior. We ask all of this in your Son's most precious and holy name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.